HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, an employee-owned company that's been making stone ground products for decades. Bob's Red Mill makes it possible to eat healthfully and cook delicious food. Go to bobsredmill.com and use the code Taste of the Past for 25% off your order. Food and travel. They go hand in hand. And chances are, if you're a fan of Heritage Radio Network, you love them both. Between April 10th and 24th, we have six incredible food and travel experiences up for auction at CharityBuzz.com. Go on an underground food tour of New Orleans with a rocket scientist. Get your hands on VIP passes to Feast Portland or enjoy a ranch to table experience in wine country. Four of the experiences include hotel stays at some of the most iconic properties across the country, including the newly reopened Hotel Claremont in Atlanta. Now's your chance to win the ultimate bourbon and beyond weekend in Lexington or take in a Latin food tour of New York's outer boroughs. You'll eat, drink, explore, and relax, all while supporting Heritage Radio Network. Help us keep the lights on and the mics hot. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash auction and bid now. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And you know, the life of royal families has long been the stuff of books and novels, TV movies, TVs and movies and series, long series. Just think of uh, Upstairs, Downstairs, Downton Abbey, The Crown, Elizabeth, the movie Elizabeth. (laughs) And recently, there have been several treatments of Victoria. That's right, Queen Victoria. Last year... um, we had a series that came on, or just actually this past year, and now there are two new movies. Really, just very interesting uh, treatments of the royal life and the monarchs. Ah, were that we were to have such long reigns. I think we've had almost as many presidents as Britain has had monarchs, and the difference is well over 1,200 years. <laughs> so just goes to show you there's a lot of material there for people to study. There's now a biography. It was recently published this past year, and it takes a little bit of a different tack. 
It's called The Greedy Queen, and it's a culinary biography of Queen Victoria, looking at her life and times through the lens of food. And the author, Annie Gray, or Dr. Annie Gray, as she's referred to on BBC Radio 4's broadcast, The Kitchen Cabinet and others, is my guest today. She's an historian, broadcaster, lecturer, and consultant specializing in British food of roughly 1650 through the present day. That's a lot. That's a lot of food. As as she writes, food is a brilliant way to get under the skin of past societies, which I just may adopt for our motto here on my show. Watch out, Annie. I'm going to plagiarize you. But she is joining us today by phone from across the pond. Welcome, Annie. Hello. Thanks for having me. This book is is actually marvelous, and I don't want to really just talk about the book because we have to let people go out and buy it. Um, (laughs) It's called The Greedy Queen, of course, and it deals with so many things, where the food came from, who prepared it, the kitchens it was cooked in, and, and as you write, the way the meals worked in practice. But... I want to go back to the title. Why Greedy Queen? What is because that political? Was, okay. um, I mean, she started off her life, or rather her adult life, as someone who was five foot one and uh, weighed, well, weighed about seven stone two when she was married. So in modern terms, she's got a BMI at that point of about 18.8. So kind of almost underweight. And then by the end of her life, she becomes that iconic figure that most people know very, very well, the sort of black blob. And at that point, she has a waist measurement of about 54 inches. So she definitely ate, and she ate in a way that today we would certainly say, I suspect that she had a bit of an eating disorder. But above and beyond that as well, when she was a teenager, she was frequently called greedy, and food was certainly something that she loved. Um, And I think that she felt that loved her back as well. Hmm. But in... Certainly, as as you have expressed, and and we've seen in other writings and other biographies, I mean, she was not politically greedy, necessarily. No, I mean, I think she did have a greed for life, Mm. above and beyond the politics, above and beyond her relationship with her children. All these things have been picked over a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is quite possible to paint a picture of a queen who was selfish, who was incompetent at times, who was... Um, absent a lot of the time as well. But I think when you study her just from the perspective of her food and her relationship with her food, you come to somebody who is greedy for food, yes, but that reflects a a wider greediness to live life to the full. And of course, as a woman and as a queen, she was very restricted. Um, She couldn't just wander off into the streets. She couldn't go and visit most of her empire, even though she quite wanted to. Uh, She was very much prescribed by her position and by her gender. And so she sort of, I think, almost sought to have life brought to her through her food. Mm. Um, Towards the end of her life, she ate curry quite regularly. If she got wind of a new food she'd never tried, she'd have it brought to her rather than going to it, and she'd scoff away at it. And she just has this most incredible appetite for things she's never come across, which I found really quite interesting, given that I sort of look at my own grandparents, um, and indeed parents, and indeed some of the people around me, and younger people who would never try anything that was out of the ordinary, and are actually almost scared of different foods. And I look at Victoria and think, you know, actually there's something there to really be admired. Well, is this... um 
is this particularly why the period to go into such an in-depth study of, of her life and the food? I mean, now you've gone in depth with a couple of the monarchs. You did you know, the Georgian period and, and Edwardian too, I believe, right? So is that part of the reason or the reason why this period was so interesting to you? I think the reason I came to this period more than any other is because certainly in Britain, the Victorian era has had a really, really bad press when it comes to food. It's got a reputation for being stodgy, for using loads of butter, for using loads of eggs. You know, over here, the most famous cook, I think, ever, Isabella Beaton, was a Victorian cook. And, and so many people think Victorian food and think Beaton's Book of Household Management and then immediately turn around and say, oh, yes, she didn't use a lot of eggs. And it's really unfair, this idea that Victorian food was somehow boring and stodgy and plain and hideous. And, you know, I just thought, actually, I want to look at a period through a woman who ate a lot of the food in that period Mm -hmm. and really try and reassess the way in which we look at that culture and come out at the end of it, hopefully, with readers having a new appreciation of an era that perhaps they hadn't really thought of before as being something they should be interested in from a a gastronomic point of view. Well, so much was going on during this period of time, too, in in particular changes and advancements in food, um, food cooking, um, such as, let's say, gas cooking, which never had been before, and, and canned foods were, or tinned, as you would say, were, were available. I mean, there was, this was a period, as you had mentioned yourself in the book, a period of enormous culinary change. Yeah, it's absolutely huge. You go from what is essentially, well, it is late Georgian Britain, where the majority of people are cooking on open hearth fires, where closed ranges, open ranges, just ranges in general are still very much not the norm, um, where preservation tends to mean salting or drying or smoking still. And by the end of the era, you've got a huge range of commercially available products, everything from Worcester sauce to tomato ketchup to tin soups to, I mean, you can get almost anything in a tin by the end of the period in a, mm. in a can or, or a jar, actually. You've also got the first shipments of frozen food coming in to Britain from South America and also Australia and New Zealand at the end of the period. And you've got the birth of electric cooking. M- many, many more homes have got ranges by the end of the period. Britain urbanises as well. So 1851 is the key year, the, the census year, where for the first time ever, more than 50% of the population live in towns and cities rather than in the countryside. And, of course, that means you've got a population who are more and more reliant on shops and on bought products rather than on growing their own things or going down to the local market. And you combine that as well with vast and absolutely aching urban poverty at various times. And a lot of the tropes that we see again and again and again in modern life are all there in the Victorian period. You've got middle-class people saying that the poor should all start to cook from scratch and that they shouldn't eat ready meals and that it's absolutely disgusting that they stop on their way home for fish and chips. And and yet the poor are so poor that of course they can't buy in bulk and they don't have an oven or a hob even if they did. So it's a period of enormous change and also of enormous social difference. Right. Is, Is this what you mean when you or meant when you wrote that um, the Victorian era was a birth of a modern food culture? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it is because so much of what we use today comes out of that era, both in terms of, of 
the products that we use in our kitchens. I mean, things like baking powder in cakes or mm. instant custard powder or even packet gelatin, all of those things were Victorian inventions. And if we went back to the pre-Victorian era and in order to make a jelly, we had to boil calves' feet for five hours, right. then I think most of us probably wouldn't bother with jelly. Um, the commercialization of ice cream and cake and all those things that we just take for granted really do come out of this period. But I think also the mentality behind food is, is, is very much a Victorian one that we still have. Um, dieting starts to become something that's quite serious by the end of the period. And the idea that processed food might be something that we might not want to eat. There are lots and lots of worries about food adulteration, food scares. A lot of the things that today we're discussing really do have roots in the 19th century. Interesting. That's very, that's very interesting. And what I want to remind our listeners who may not be familiar here on this side of the pond, we have enough to deal with with our own our own so-called monarchs. Um, but that <laughs> Victoria, I mean, until a couple of years ago, until three years ago, she had the longest reign in British history, right, from 1837 until 1901? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons that she's yeah. such a fascinating and, and a good person, really, to, to hook a book onto. If she'd only reigned for four years, that pace of culinary change would have been obviously much, much shorter. There you see what um, we're dealing with. But it is a <laughs> crucial period for so much, beyond food even, um, you know, human rights, political rights, the rights for women in particular, all march on in that era. But I think in the food sphere in particular, it's one where you can really see a change from what is essentially a rural economy to one which is essentially an urbanized and industrialized food economy. And I think it's very important not to romanticize what came before. Um, a lot of people still say today, oh, you know, we should all be eating seasonally, we should all be eating organically, we should all grow our own fruit and vegetables, etc., etc. But when you look just simply at the, at the aspect of food and, fruit and vegetables, you know, pre-Victorian um, vegetable varieties didn't germinate very well, they didn't have very good crops cropping they didn't uh, they weren't blight resistant all those things so while in some ways the sort of pre-victorian culture had some good aspects and we might lament the industrialization of our food system that industrialization did give us food that was cheap enough that the working class has got enough protein not to die quite frankly yeah, right. um, and it also gave us a, a better and more reliable source for a lot of our foods that we eat as well right well in, it's interesting because you um as you said, she, uh, Victoria welcomed all kinds of types of cuisines and, and new ingredients and, and that um, the fact that she, that she did eat any kind of, of foods brought in for other places and, and really entertained them, that she should be, um, that she should be uh, revered for this because it changed the way we eat. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think she is a bit of a culinary icon or should be. Yeah. Her willingness to embrace other cultures extended beyond food. I mean, the one thing that she was not was, was racist, actually, in an era which was very, very racist. Um, in 1887, for her Golden Jubilee, she had five Indian servants brought across from Agra, uh, all resplendent in turbans and fine silks, and they came with their own servant who prepared their meals. And when she got wind of that, she said, oh, well, I, I want to try some of your curry. So the Indian servant cooked a curry for her, and she really liked it. And after that, she had a, an Indian dish, as it's typed on the menus, um, twice a week for quite a while. Um, you know, this is this is an era where I mean, curry was part and parcel of the British um, culinary sphere by that point, but it was very much regarded as quite an inferior dish, something that you did with leftovers. So she was probably one of the first people in Britain who hadn't been in India itself 
to taste what was a sort of almost authentic Indian dish. I mean, obviously they were using British ingredients and spices which had travelled on a ship for a very long time, but I think it was about as accurate or as authentic as it could get at the time. All right. Uh, Well, what... Now, we just we talked about, or you talked about, um, the foods that were coming into fashion then and uh, the convenience convenience items, having a store to go and buy it at rather than having to grow it. But what, at that time, um, let's say in the earlier part of her reign, what were a few of the Victorian classics that would identify the food of that period? Mutton and caper sauce was one mm-hmm. of the really big ones. Um, Victoria always loved mutton, so sheep that is over a year old, and in her case it was usually five or six years old, and caper sauce was a really classic way to serve it. So it's just a a roux made with butter and flour, um, and then you add in water or possibly the stock if you've um, poached the mutton, just to make a sauce, a bit like making a bechamel sauce, Uh, throw in a bit of salt and a bit of vinegar at the end, and then you throw in a load of chopped capers, and the capers cut through the richness of the mutton Uh really, really well. So that's a very, very classic late Georgian, early Victorian dish. Um, she very much enjoyed cakes as well, and sponge cake was a, a big favourite. Uh, and again, a very sort of classic early Victorian dish. What you tend to find is the stuff in the earlier part of her reign is it's not plainer, because royal food was certainly never, ever plain, but it tends to be written in a slightly less highfalutin way. And by the end of her reign, almost everything gains kind of a la Bordelaise and a la this and a la that, and, and tends to be described in a much lengthier, much more francophone way as well. Um, I mean, by the end, you've got a lot more moulded goods on the table and a lot more things that involve sort of colourings and being pounded through sieves, whereas the early part, I think, there is more, obviously, nature on the table, large lumps of meat, um, birds served their heads and legs on as roasts, that kind of thing. Well, this was also the time during her reign that we saw the style of service change, which affected the way the services is throughout much of the Western world, going from a la Francaise, which everything's on the table at once, into a la Russe, where it's served in courses. This must have changed dramatically the way the kitchens were functioning as well. Yes, it did. Um, I mean, the royal kitchens were relatively backward. Queen Victoria didn't adapt a la Russe until 1874. Um, And of course, to some extent, the actual dishes that were served were roughly similar. So the old two savoury courses of à la française simply got kind of elongated for à la russe. So where with à la française, you'd have had soup and fish and entrees on the table at once, and then you'd have had a remove course. You now moved to having soup, fish, then entrees, then a roast, then a remove. So things sort of just got spread out to some extent. But the way the food was presented changed because, of course, with à la française, everybody's helping themselves to the dishes that are on the table. So portioning is kind of up to the diner, whereas with à la russe, it's portioned up on a big serving plate and brought up. So it looks great from a distance, but has individual portions built within it. So the food is much more controlled by the chef and much less by the diner. And the impact on the kitchens is very much that you end up with a structure whereby you have very, very junior chefs preparing things like sauces and stocks. They then pass them up to the chef above them who prepares purees and makes the stocks into things beyond that. They then pass them up to the master cook who then assembles the final dish and then the chief cook signs it off. So it becomes a much, much more pyramidical system with à la russe, whereas with à la française, normally you had one chef taking the dish from start to finish. 
Hmm, interesting. Sounds a bit like the line in any good restaurant mm-hmm. of today, right? <laughs> um, you had mentioned that there um, that you were surprised, or people um, in doing the research have been surprised by the vast quantities of sugar that was consumed in the royal household. Was this well in other households around uh, that period as well? Was this kind of a holdover from the Elizabethan period? I mean, I know sugar was that, that it came to be and was was highly prized and eaten. Well, sugar was still very prestigious at the beginning of the reign, um, less so by the end because the sugar tax was reduced um, dramat- dramatically in eighteen seventies. In eighteen seventies, so the working classes sort of their sugar consumption rose absolutely drastically at the end of the period. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the things, especially in the early part of the reign, was that there was still this very Georgian feeling vogue for sugar sculpture. So if you think about Antonin Karem and right. his infamous sculptures right. of balloons rising from plates and Roman helmets and that kind of thing, they were still extraordinarily fashionable in the very early part of the reign. So for Albert's birthday, um, one of his birthday parties in the 1840s, there were various military triumphant emblems marching down the table in sugar. Um, the wedding cakes, of course, that Victoria had and then all of her nine children had were these sugar masterpieces with multi-tiers and extra layers built just out of sugar. So sugar had a really important role to play to the extent that there was even a separate department in the royal kitchens just for sugar craft. And the confectionery usually employed about five people and had three rooms at Windsor just to itself. And this was at a time when the majority of aristocratic households were trenching and where it was becoming harder and harder actually for the royal household to recruit confectioners because they just didn't exist in private households anymore so they had to poach them from the leading commercial confectioners of the day. Hmm. Interesting. Well you have spent a lot of time in many of these royal kitchens and when we come back after a short break I want to ask you about those kitchens. host of A Taste of the Past, and you've probably heard me talk about Bob's Red Mill on the air before. They are one of our generous sponsors of programming here at Heritage Radio Network. You know, I wouldn't endorse their products if I didn't believe in them or like them. I've really been a fan of several of their products for a long time before I even knew that they were a sponsor, particularly the almond flour and the farro and the oats. But then I decided to try one of their new products. It's a pancake mix, a high-protein pancake mix. And I have to admit, I was a little skeptical because I'm a from-scratch baker and cook generally, and this mix is all complete. All you do is add water. So first I read the ingredients, thinking, do I really want to try this? And I was impressed. I could pronounce everything on the ingredient list. That's a sure sign that they're natural products. They have a high-protein whey and a high-protein pea flour and just really interesting ingredients and good ingredients. And their whole wheat pastry flour is the base, which I'm also a fan of. So I gave it a try, and all I did was add water. Usually I try to slip in an extra egg or something, but I just added water. And you know what? I liked it. 
it was usually, you know, the, the high-protein products are, are often dense, heavy, and this was actually a fluffy pancake. It had a very even texture, and I thought, not bad. I'm convinced. Maybe you should give a try, too. So go to bobsredmill.com and check out their whole line of products. And don't forget to use A Taste of the Past when you check out for 25% off your order. We're back, and I'm talking with Annie Gray, the author of The Greedy Queen, Dining with Queen, or Eating with Queen, Eating, excuse me, just a minute, I'm going to get that title right, Eating (laughs) with Victoria. That was easy. I was going to add a lot more to it. Eating with Victoria. Um, You have said that Victoria's commitment to food was awe-inspiring. Now, that obviously because you were you dug deep into uh, into the background and the history of, of the time and what she was eating. Uh, who was cooking for her? Who were primarily the chefs in these royal kitchens? She had about 45 cooks in total, um, plus various other people connected to the kitchens, and they were a real mixture of nationalities. She normally had quite a few French people in there because French cuisine was regarded was it, right? as yeah. what you should aspire to. Uh, her bakers were often German. She tended to have some Swiss in there. Italians tended to be in the confectionery. So there was a real mixture, and then a lot of British people as well. Um, and the kitchens were they were this very curious, very kind of nepotistic place. So the easiest way to get into them as an apprentice was to have a relative who already worked for the for the Queen in some other context. So you find there are sons of bandmasters, there are sons of guards, there are sons of secretaries, there are sons of dressers, that kind of thing. And there are also a few women. Um, they're very much in the minority. There are about 15 women that work in the kitchen, all in very low positions. Um, and people don't leave. They sort of join as an apprentice, and then they work their way up through the various ranks, and then eventually probably when they're in their 50s or 60s, they make master cook, which is the highest rank below the chief cook himself. Uh, And then eventually one or two of them might make chief cook, or in very unusual circumstances, someone might be brought in from outside, although they don't tend to get on with the rather rarefied atmosphere of the royal kitchens, or indeed the relatively low pay versus other kitchens of that status. Mm. Uh, And the the kitchens themselves, how, what... What did you observe? What was anything that was very, that was surprising? Well, probably not surprising because everything is on record. In fact, all the menus and the, well, and the shopping list. The curious thing was, and I expected there to be loads of information, and, and there is loads of information. I mean, I probably could have spent, you know, another three years researching it, although I'm not sure that it would have added much to the book. But certain key things are missing. So the Royal Archives has a, an, a run of dining ledgers, um, which detail everything the Queen ate for her dinners, her lunches, and sometimes her breakfasts from when she became queen, or a month after when she became queen, to 1858. And then they sort of give out, and no one's quite sure where the others are. So after that, there were just the occasional um, ledgers left, and not for all the palaces either. So there's very, very little information, for example, on what she ate when she was at Osborne House, uh, and the same for Balmoral. So it's it's not quite <laughs> as simple as you might think, and in some cases it's very, very frustrating. I spent about... Several months on and off trying to work out when gas went into Windsor Castle kitchens for cooking mm. on, and eventually I concluded that it was after Victoria's reign. But it was much, much harder to find out that information than I thought it might be. Mm. Well, um, how you you um, 
actually gave a, a very interesting kind of perspective on these kitchens that we would see, you know, that we do, we see pictures of, and some like Hampton House has just been renovated and recently, and, and um, the tours that they give through that. How many people, you think, well, they're cooking for Albert and Victoria and their children. Of course, there were nine children. That's a lot of mouths to feed. But <laughs> on average, how many people did these kitchens serve? It depended on where they were. I mean, the main, the main kitchen for the royals were, was always at Windsor, and Windsor Castle Kitchen had been done up by George IV in 1828 and was absolutely incredible, and it still is absolutely incredible today. So you can still visit the kitchens at Windsor, um, I think only over the summer, and it's quite restricted depending on what the Queen is up to. But the kitchen at Windsor is this absolutely just mind-blowing space. It looks like a chapel, a huge chapel um, with clerestory windows at the top and so it's all lit from above. There's copper gleaming on the walls. There's these huge steam-heated tables and um, fireplaces at either end of the kitchen which have got battlements on top of them because that was George IV's taste. Uh, And in the day, there were charcoal chafing stoves down both sides of the room as well. But that was only one of about 30 rooms at Windsor connected to cooking. So there was the main kitchen, there was a vegetable preparation space, there was a scullery, there was a fish prep space, there was a meat prep space, there were three rooms for the confectionery, there were four rooms for the pastry, there was a bakehouse, there were hundreds of larders, you know, it just went on and on and on. Hmm. And Windsor acted as a bit of a hub for all of the palaces, so obviously when the Queen was at Windsor, they would be cooking for her there. Uh, at Buckingham Palace, there were quite substantial kitchens, but at least until 1850, they were absolutely disgusting. So a lot of the food was sent there from Windsor. And when she was at Osborne or at Balmoral, they tended to only take about 15 or 16 cooks with them. So again, things like cakes and bread, well, bread was bought locally, but cakes and a lot of the cold goods would be sent up to Balmoral by train or down to Osborne by train. So the kitchens very much differed depending on the palace. And and again, the numbers differed as well. So at Windsor, they might well be feeding 3,000 people in a day because of all the servants. Mm. But at Osborne or Balmoral, it's probably only about three or 400, which is still a hell of a lot. But obviously not not quite as many uh, as at Windsor. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's that's what I think we tend to forget when, I mean, obviously we know from um, on this side of the pond, of course, our own, you know, the the uh, the White House is always serving so many people and so many dinners. And it's not just the royal dinners that we read of, the banquets that were happening um, during her reign and every monarch's reign. But as you say, just the because of so many people who worked there, who lived there, um, that they all had to be fed as well. And yeah, and there were lots of abuses in the system as well. I mean, mm. it was a very archaic system at the palaces, and a lot of people were entitled to be fed at the Queen's expense. Um, and they did sort of take the mick a bit sometimes as well. There were instances of things like rooms that were to be supplied with crates of wine on a daily basis, because at some point 100 years ago, some people had eaten in there. Uh, and that rule had never been rescinded. So this empty room was having a crate of wine delivered to it every day. And, of course, people would drink the wine because they knew it was going to be there. <laughs> um, and you had just absolute, tens and tens of groups of different people all needing to be fed in different places. And all of them very, very conscious of status. So the sort of personal assistants wouldn't eat in the same place as the equerries. And the households, so the titled attendants to Victoria, who were often um, ladies and gentlemen in their own right, or lords and ladies, I should say, in their own right, they ate very separately to anybody else who might have a similar status but wasn't a personal attendant. And, you know, it all got very, very, very complicated. 
complicated. And towards the end of the reign, you have this sort of enormous list of people, nurses and governesses and choristers and policemen and security guards, and, you know, you, you name it, you dream it up, there's a group. Uh, and the dining ledgers list out what they're eating in a very basic way. They don't, they don't sort of give any details, but it would just sort of say, electricians, and it would say, three pounds of mutton, four pounds of beef, uh, and then it would say, choristers, five pounds of mutton, ten pounds of beef, and it just goes on and on like that. So you do get the impression that there was eating going on in almost every room of the palace at various points in the day. Hmm. Well, we know from your book that she loved to eat and she loved food. Is there any documentation that she ever visited the kitchens? Yes. The kitchens at Windsor were quite a tourist attraction, um, and she used to go down there and take her visiting guests to go down as well. Um, certainly if they were dignitaries, people like the Shah of Persia or the Kaiser. Or, I mean, she was related to most of the king crowned heads of Europe by the end of the reign. But visiting the kitchens was part and parcel of what you did. So you would usually go and visit the kitchen gardens, and they were amalgamated at Windsor after 1850, and you could go there and you could visit them and stand in the lower floor of the gardener's house, which was all set out for posh visitors, and you couldn't see the onions, um, but you could see the more elevated fruit and vegetables. And then you'd come back and you'd visit the kitchen, and she'd write in her journals about visiting the kitchens and talking to the chef. Uh, she spoke French, of course, so she would have been able to converse with the chef in French. Um, mm. And she also spoke German, so she'd have been able to speak to her bakers in German. And it was certainly something that people did. And, and even lower servants, even sort of dressers or uh, ladies-in-waiting would all make sure they went to go and see the kitchens. So the Windsor Castle kitchens, I suspect, must have had quite a lot of people in them at various points that were not actually cooking. Huh, very interesting. Uh, I like the fact that um, you talked about how she encouraged her children to be familiar with the kitchen. They had play, uh, just like as we would have today for for um, toddlers and young children, play kitchens. Yeah, they had, well, there's a play kitchen that's sort of bigger than my kitchen. Um, <laughs> they had, at Osborne House, there was this thing called Swiss Cottage, which was built for, and indeed by the children, which is a, a replica of a Swiss chalet. And it was prefabbed in the UK and put together by carpenters with Bertie helping them. And down there, the children had a museum. They had um, a sort of small menagerie set up. There's a gazelles and bantams and rabbits and chihuahuas and goodness knows what else. Uh, they had a sort of room where they could take tea and dine, which later became the Queen's study. They had a changing room and a loo. And downstairs, there was a scullery, which doubled as a dairy, and also this kitchen. And it's absolutely perfect. It's been fitted out by... By Belgian uh, manufacturers in the main, probably people who exhibited at the Great Exhibition, and it's it's perfect. It's absolutely lovely. I cooked in it. I was really lucky. I was the first person to cook in it for 170 years, wow. and I thought it was just exactly the right size, actually. And then someone said it was three quarter size and aimed at 13 year olds. <laughs> but I'm quite short, so I'm, I'm taking it. You're not that tall. <laughs> um, but it's got range. It's got uh, sort of. It's got ovens. It's got chafing stoves. It's got a table in the middle of the room. It's got copper from the same people that fitted out the royal kitchens. And then outside, all the children had vegetable plots. So they all learnt to garden and to produce fruit and vegetables, which they would then sell to Prince Albert at market price so they'd know the value of money. So it's a really important experience for them. And then the younger ones also had a little play kitchen. So if they were sort of two or three, they could play at this little play kitchen, which was a little replica, really, of the kitchens at Osborne themselves. So, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, you don't, I think, think of that aspect of Victoria's life a lot of the time when you think of it, but... When you visit Swiss Cottage and Osborne itself, actually, which is one of the very few places, I think, where you really get a sense of her as a person, 
you do get this idea that actually at times she could be really rather lovely and you do get a vision of her and her children all cooking and then sitting down to afternoon tea where she eats the cake that they've made and it's all really rather lovely yeah and it you know one would think that well that's you know rather ordinary instruction to get them familiar with the kitchen for princes and princesses and dukes and, and royal children However, you gave a very excellent explanation, I think, for that, why that was so important. Well, it's, I think it's important both because people would be commanding servants and therefore needed to know their way around the kitchen, um, and also because they genuinely enjoyed it. I think Victoria always chafed at the bit a little bit, and Albert certainly really wasn't fond of court life. So for them at Osborne, they tried as much as possible to live in the way they thought a middle-class family would live. I mean, okay, they're middle-class with, you know, 300 hangers-on, but they're trying desperately to recreate an ideal of family life, which neither of them had as parents. And both Albert and Victoria uh, grew up with only one parent and quite odd upbringing in in both cases. So I think they did try to bring up their children in a very balanced way. Um, whether they succeeded is a slightly different matter, but the children absolutely loved it. And Vicky, Victoria's eldest daughter, when she married and went to Germany, made her own butter um, and took over a dairy and wrote back and said, well, I need some British settling pans because the Germans don't know how to rise the cream properly. <laughs> it's quite clear that it, it really was quite a, a fundamental part of the children's upbringing. Yeah, excellent. Uh, after her, unfortunately, Albert died quite young and left her a widow at, what, age 40? 43. 43. Very young. Yeah, and as you describe it, she basically dove into food. And I don't know, I think her gobbling um, habits were established, well established prior to that. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> um, but she she did continue in that vein of, of actually not dining with a partner, but actually gobbling and eating voraciously. Um and you describe that it uh, will tell you tell us what what was it like for a visitor coming to dine with her excruciating a lot of the time uh, i mean as soon as albert died she had a nervous breakdown rather understandably um, and then plunged herself back into eating and she put on a great deal of weight very very quickly and you know she was middle-aged at that point she wasn't well she's young really certainly by modern standards and i think this idea of her as a very old person that we tend to have is is quite unfair but she did deliberately become a recluse she decided she wasn't going to have anything more to do with sociability she wasn't going to host state dinners she wasn't going to have visitors and eventually she had to be coaxed out in the 1870s mainly because her children needed to be married and they needed dowries so she needed to go to parliament in order to get them to give her children money Uh, and after that she did start to host more state dinners and a lot of them commented on her because by then she was becoming already something of a a living icon Um, and it could be absolutely awful eating with her Um, she could put away if she wanted to all nine courses of her meal by that point in half an hour um, and no one got to have any conversation and no one got to really finish their meal. <laughs> but she would also take two and a half hours over the same meal, depending on what she was feeling like and the control she wished to exert on her fellow diners. But um, there's one visitor, in the, I think in the 1880s, who visits and says he couldn't really tell what the Queen looked like because she was so buried under ruffles and lace 
that he had to sort of peer beneath this enormous amount of fabric to try and locate her. But he was incredibly impressed with her stalwart troughing at the table <laughs> as she put away every single course that was offered to her, including both hot and cold puddings. Um, so I think it could be quite impressive. Mm. And she always or almost always came across very well. Most of the people that met her were quite surprised that she was quite girlish and had this rather glorious speaking voice and a lovely laugh as well. Um, so she wasn't at all, I think, in most cases, the rather cantankerous person that she uh, has been left to us by history, I think. All right. Well, it's often um, said that, you know, the food of that era was, was rather plain, and you and you defend that saying, no, it wasn't, at least not the food that she liked. Um, uh, and it's actually proof of that is you do a wonderful thing in this book, aside from the wonderful information within the book, that you preface every chapter with, um, a, an original recipe for one of the dishes, some of the dishes, and then you have some modernized recipes in the back of the book. Where did these recipes come from, by and large, that you have in the book, in the beginning of the chapters? They were quite fun to select, because I wanted to pick recipes that would reflect the information in each chapter. So, for example, on the chapter that covers her childhood, I give a recipe for a biscuit that she very much enjoyed. And when I'm looking at uh, kitchens. I'm trying to do something which shows the technique and the level of, of expertise involved. Um, but they're nearly all recipes that I knew and had cooked already, mm-hmm. because I did want to give recipes that would be good, by and large. Right. Um, and they came... I mean, I've got an embarrassingly large collection of recipe books here. <laughs> um, so they came out of my collection. But, you know, some of them I, I'm quite proud of. I mean, the, the stuffed boar's head is not something that is approachable, I think, for the, by the faint-hearted. Um, but I've done the stuffed boar's head three times now for my sins. Um, and I always knew I wanted that to go into the book because it is a very complicated recipe that really is, it really does show off the techniques of Victorian cuisine. But also, if anybody did cook it, it's absolutely delicious. Well, I'm sure it is. And I'm. it's wonderful that you... Um, made yourself, or not made yourself, but in, but were um, in, enjoyed delving into those odd recipes as well as the more complicated ones and the simple ones. The book is an absolute delight. Um, it is full of interesting information and gives, I think it gave me a whole new perspective on on the food at the time and how you know the ordinary people were dealing with what they were observing in, you know, as for the, of the royal family. And um, I, I think it's it's well worth um, the visit to your book. <laughs> and I <laughs> thank, thank you. you and I thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Um, I do want to encourage people to hear they can hear you on occasionally. I don't, not every um, every broadcast, but on BBC, BBC Radio 4's The Kitchen Cabinet, a wonderful, wonderful, lively, fun, and fast-paced uh, discussion of food types. And as well as you've done different documentaries on food history for television as well, right? Yes, yes, yes. yes. One on baking, one on confectionery, all sorts of bits and pieces. I crop up quite a lot, but um, I think the kitchen cabinet is... It's properly solid, though. It's a brilliant show. I really enjoy doing it. It's a delightful show. I've had Rachel uh, McCormick on as well from the show, and I just, I'm just always, I'm just always inspired by the um, the liveliness and the speed with which yeah. all the information I mean, is transferred. Making it is always to make it feel as if you're having a really good dinner party. Uh huh. 
uh-huh. you've got mates over and you're all, you're all food obsessed and you're all having a bit of a chat about it. That's, that's what it sounds like. Slotting the sherry or whatever you're doing. Yeah. And I think we do achieve that. Yeah, um, do. It's both informative and entertaining, as I think all good things should be. Absolutely. And I thank you for sharing all your information with us. And I thank my listeners for tuning in. Again, this has been A Taste of the Past. And I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.